Hello, and welcome to Procagium. I'm your host, Brenna Grasco-McTiernan, and I have taken a long sabbatical from podcasting. Uh, I started this podcast in 2020 because it's been such a sea of insanity. I decided, you know, what's one more drop of my own personal weird, you know, if not now, when? and share my personal experiences with the strange and unusual and discuss some of the research I've been inspired to delve into because of these experiences. But I didn't know when I started this podcast how truly crazy 2020 would get. And about midsummer, I really started to struggle with putting the information for the podcast cohesively together, doing the research and and really producing a podcast quality I want to share with you. So I took a step back, but after (laughs) a few months of regrounding and still being in the sea of insanity of 2020, I'm back. And I'm here to discuss with you what I said I would talk to you about back in June and discuss with you magic, where the concept of magic really originated, a bit into our magical history, some of the research that's been conducted on the subject, and delve into at least one account of the miraculous recorded in our shared human history. Magic really blankets a lot of different phenomena. Um, It can be interpreted as miracles or the miraculous in a religious context. Um, Historically, it's been equated with non-traditional folk remedies um, or indigenous shamanic practices involving meditation, trance, or ingesting um, entheogenic substances and vision quests. You know, it's associated with the awe and wonder that's elicited from a talented stage performer with illusions and tricks. Um, It's seen in psychic or extrasensory perception abilities, um, in spiritual or physical alchemy, um, or the practice of belief that rituals, uh, conscious efforts, and or intentional actions may serve as conduits by which one may manipulate natural or supernatural phenomena at will. So it covers a lot of subjects here, guys. I'm barely scraping the surface. My interests in magic came from my exposure to a multitude of different religions, spiritual practices, and mythologies when I was a kid. You know, the magical runs through almost all of these systems. And coupled with that, if you tuned into previous podcasts, I've had personal experiences with psychic abilities, precognitive dreams, and and many more things in my life. So I believe in this phenomena, um, and I've been driven to explore the history of it and, and kind of understand how it came about and how it works throughout our history. So we'll just delve into it. Carl Jaspers, 1883 to 1969, was a German-Swiss psychiatrist and philosopher, and he coined the era in which magical concepts first developed, the Axial Period, which lasted from 800 to 200 BCE. It was during this period of time that human beings, or at least human beings of the ruling class, were able to expand beyond concepts of mere survival and began pondering you know loftier ideas such as the nature of the universe 
This shift in perspective is sometimes referred to as the emergence of second order thought. It was during this time period, this axial period, that Taoism and Confucianism emerged in China. Buddhism, Hinduism, and Jainism uh, appeared in India. The Hebrew prophet Isaiah and Jeremiah, among others, uh, came out of Palestine. Zoroaster, the Greek name for the prophet Zarathustra, founded one of the first monotheistic religions. And Greek philosophers, including Pythagoras, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, began questioning the origins of the universe, you know, really pondering the meaning, morality, and fate of humanity, and ended up founding some of the origins of logic, mathematics, and rational analysis. This second-order thought is theorized to have emerged from the various mystery schools which flourished throughout the ancient world. Many of these schools shared similar goals, which incorporated the initiation into the mysteries of life at large and sought to, quote, open the immortal eyes of man inwards, exalting powers of perception until one could receive messages of a higher degree of reality. These mystery schools often included similar practices, um, one of which consisted of experiencing a ritual death and subsequent resurrection, which allowed the initiate new capabilities of intuiting secret wisdom. It's widely theorized that the use of entheogenic substances may have played a part in these rituals. Entheogenic substances, guys, is another term for hallucinogenic substances, which is a whole nother podcast, so we'll just leave it there. The longest lasting of these mystery schools was the Greek Eleusinian mystery school, which ran from roughly 1500 BCE to 392 Common Era, when Christian emperor, emperor Theodosius I, head of the Holy Roman Empire, officially de declared the rites of the mystery school pagan and therefore heretical. Um, this was done because the mystery schools were so popular and widespread that they were interfering with the church's authority. In its heyday, the Greek philosophers regarded these mysteries with extreme awe. Even the Roman skeptic Cicero, 106 to 438 CE, wrote, nothing is higher than these mysteries. They have not only shown us how to live joyfully, but they have taught us how to die with a better hope. One of the most famous initiates into the Eleusinian mystery schools was Plato, student of Socrates and teacher of Aristotle, who lived from 427 to 347 BCE. Plato proposed the existence of a higher domain of reality, or a reality of pure ideas. Plato used the allegory of prisoners in a cave to explain this concept, and for those who are not familiar with the allegory of the cave, it was represented by prisoners being chained in a cave and only being able to look at one wall, and what they saw on the wall were these shadows projected by puppets and firelight that was behind them that they couldn't see, and one of these prisoners was able to get free and actually leave the cave, and upon leaving the cave was able to perceive this whole other illuminated reality. But upon returning to the cave and trying to convince the, the other prisoners that there was a whole other reality, 
the prisoners basically called him crazy. Plato used the allegory of the prisoners to argue that there was a difference between every, the everyday appearance of the world shaped by everyday language and concepts and the actual world itself, which required a special form of knowing called gnosis, which was different from intellectual or rational knowing. American psychologist and philosopher William James, 1842 to 1910, provided a similar word, noetic, in his famous book, Varieties of Religious Experience. These expansive, esoteric thoughts came to a screeching halt in the Middle Ages, also known as the Dark Ages, an extremely unpleasant time to vacation. If you happen to be a time traveler, I give it zero stars, which strongly not recommend. It was a period of about a thousand years that lasted between the fall of the Roman Empire and the beginning of the Renaissance, uh, about the fifth century to the 14th century. And during this time, the Catholic Church's tolerance of magic rapidly dissipated. Church leaders clamped down on the widespread popularity of pagan beliefs. Um, in, nine, in, in early 13th century, Pope Gregory IX established the holy police force known as the Inquisition to combat heresy. And in 1252, Pope Innocent IV, terrible dude, formalized the Inquisition and authorized the use of torture to force confessions and burn people alive for their heretical beliefs. Hundreds of thousands of people, perhaps as much as a million individuals, were arrested, tortured, and killed at the hands of the Inquisition. These horrific acts forced esoteric interests deep underground, and the cultural memory and terror of being considered deviant because of one's ideas and beliefs continues to affect us to this day. The Renaissance, lasting from the 14th through the 17th century, is for many considered the golden era of ceremonial magic. During this time, translations of manuscripts long held in Arabic, Greek, and Asian states began to be slowly reintroduced to Western scholars. The invention of the printing press and the distribution of these translated texts resulted in an explosion of renewed ideas and a huge relief from the stagnation and suppression of the previous thousand years of the Dark Age. During this time period, innumerable thinkers devoted energy and um, investigation to both the visible and invisible dimensions of the universe. A popular model of the Renaissance cosmos featured an ethereal dimension called Numa, P-N-E-U-M-A, which exists between the physical and spiritual realms. In this idea or cosmos, all persons and things, although materially separate from each other, were understood to be intertwined at a pneumatic level, connecting all things through mysterious correspondences that escaped the base senses. Post-Enlightenment 18th century brought about German physician Franz Anton Mesmer, who created a healing practice which translated to English as the term animal magnetism. The term animal here refers to life or living systems and not the usual concept of a bird or beast. Mesmer proposed the existence of an invisible universal fluid which was said to flow continuously throughout reality and served as a mean by which the planets, the earth, and all living creatures interacted. His form of healing, which became known as mesmerism, 
was used as an attempt to manipulate these forces for healing practices. Mesmer's idea of, of animal magnetism is similar to Periclesis's cosmic fluid, the yoic concept of prana, the Chinese qi or qi, and the Lakota tribes Wakin, among many other comparisons. So the concept of a living or vital force permeating the universe is present in many esoteric traditions. This is where the concept of the force comes from in Star Wars, guys. The industrial age of the 19th century brought about thinkers such as Alphonse Luis Constant, better known by the magical moniker Alphys Levy. Levy proposed that humans are a microcosm of the universe, and there are correspondences that exist between the lower physical worlds and the higher metaphysical or spiritual worlds, hence elaborating the idea of as above, so below. Rising popularity of spiritualism and mediumship during this time gave way to the first organized scientific studies of psychic phenomena. Um, prominent scientists and philosophers of the day, including William James, Sir William Cooks, Sir Oliver Lodge, and Lord Rayleigh, became members of the Society of Psychical Research, which I've actually brought up in the first episode dealing with reincarnation. The uh, Society for Psychical Research, or SPR, still exists to this day, and its peer-reviewed academic journals lay a testament to an unbroken line of scientific studies on psychic phenomena. In 2016, they launched an online encyclopedia as a resource to those interested in psi abilities. If you're interested in that research, please go check it out. The information age brought about a massive expansion of magical thought with the contribution of innumerable individuals, but two noteworthy being English occultist Aleister Crowley and Swiss psychologist Carl Jung. From the occult perspective, Crowley was an extremely provocative character and some have deemed him to be one of the most evil men in history, but his contribution to modern magic really embraced individuality and individual power, regaling against the social norms of the time. This being referenced especially in his quote of, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Carl Jung's contribution to magic came from an intellectual thought processes with his symbolic analysis of alchemy, um, his contribution of the concept of synchronicity, dialogue about the relationship between mind and matter with quantum physicist Wolfgang Pauli, and his fascination with mythological and archetypal influences on human consciousness. The magical explorations of Crowley and other occultists and the intellectual contribution of Carl Jung really countered the emerging scientific trend towards disenchanting the world of magic. While mainstream logic and science tend to cringe away and disregard magic, there have been significant studies into the subject of magic, both stage and, and supernatural. In the case of stage magic, these studies have proved that it has a beneficial impact upon physical and mental well-being, inspiring creative problem-solving, imagination, optimism, cognitive skills, and building trust. Inspired by the comments of a nurse upon the therapeutic value of magic, conjurer and illustrator Charles Foucard published and distributed pamphlets titled Tricks for the Trenches and the War During the First World War. 
The pamphlets contain simple tricks and puzzles for nurses, medics, and soldiers to learn and perform while on the front lines. Master magician Richard Valentine Pitchford, whose stage name was Cardini, actually learned how to manipulate playing cards while recovering from shell shock and injury following the World War I Battle of Somme. During World War II, magician and psychiatrist Douglas Kelly published an article describing how he had successfully used magic tricks as a form of occupational therapy at the New York State Psychiatric Hospital. In the 1950s, a small group of American magicians established the National Committee for Therapy Through Magic and encouraged performers to team up with medics and teach magic tricks to their patients. The initiative eventually uh, dissolved, but while it was running, it involved several well-known um, medical institutes, including the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota, the Bellevue Hospital in New York, and the Variety Children's Hospital in Miami. After that initiative dissolved, this concept of magic, or at least stage magic, being used in a positive way in medical settings continued with a multitude of organizations, including Project Magic, which was a collaboration between uh, magician David Copperfield and occupational therapist Julie Jean in 1981, um, Healing Magic in 1988, which was uh, put together by magician Kevin Spencer, or Magic Aid in 2007 that was created by magician David Elkin. In the 1940s, psychologist Gertrude Schmiedler of the City College of New York proposed that people who don't believe in psi subconsciously avoid psi experiences because they don't want to experience them. This turned into the idea which she called the sheep-goat hypothesis, insomuch that skeptics are the stubborn goats and the believers are the acquiescent sheep. In a typical sheep-goat experiment, participants fill out a questionnaire asking about their beliefs in psi and about any psi experiences they may have had. Based on the responses, they are categorized as either sheep or goats. In the experiment, participants take the same type of psi test, and then the average of sheep and goat performances is compared. Schmiedler found that her hypothesis was supported. Sheep tended to score above and goats below chance. These types of sheep-goat experiments have been reproduced multiple times throughout our history and since the 1940s with very similar outcomes. In the idea of consciousness affecting reality, we have the Global Consciousness Project, or GCP, also known as the EGG Project, which is a parapsychology experiment that started in 1998 as an attempt to detect possible interactions of global consciousness with physical systems. The project monitors geographically distributed networks of random number generators around the world in a bid to identify anomalous outputs that correlate with widespread emotional responses to sets of world events. The group claimed they observed changes in the randomized uh, number generators during the terrorist attack of 9-11 and the two days that followed. Skeptics claimed the data, being openly transparent but not rigorously controlled, was faulty and skewed towards supporting the claims of the GCP. You can make your own opinion up about that subject, but the Human Global Pro uh, Consciousness Project is still in operation to this day. 
Experiments concerning the effect of prayer, meditation, blessings, or conscious intent have also been conducted. In 2007, a experiment conducted by Dr. Dean Radin was uh, conducted with blessed chocolate. In a double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled experiment, they investigated whether chocolate exposed to, quote, blessings or good intentions would enhance mood in the participants of the experiment more than unexposed chocolate from the same source. 62 participants living in the same geographical area to reduce mood variation based on weather and over a singular week to reduce effects of current events on mood fluctuation found mood improved significantly more in individuals with the intention constraints rather than the control group. In a 2001 study conducted in Taiwan, 219 women suffering from infertility and treated with in vitro fertilization were studied. The women were randomized into distinct prayer and control groups and, quote, prayed for by groups of individuals in the United States, Canada, and Australia. Neither the patients or providers were informed about the intervention. The investigators and even the statisticians did not know the group allocations until the data was collected. Thus, the study was randomized, triple-blind, controlled, and prospective in design. The study found that women who were, quote, prayed for had nearly twice as high implantation rates and pregnancy rates as those who were not. In another experiment conducted with similar parameters was done upon bush babies, those adorable little primates. 22 bush babies suffering from wounds from chronic self-injury were treated with L-tryptophan and separated into randomized prayer and control groups. The prayer animals had a greater reduction in wound size and greater hematological parameters than the control animals. This study was significant because it was conducted in a non-human species and therefore the likelihood of a placebo effect was removed. Monks, shamans, and holy men and women throughout history have performed magical feats. The story I will share with you is of St. Joseph of Capertino. Joseph was born in Italy in 1603, which was a time when the Catholic Church was a principal authority among European nations. It was also a time wrought with poverty, hunger, widespread pestilence, and war. At the age of nine, Joseph fell ill from an infection which led to gangrene, obviously before antibiotics, guys. He spent five years bedridden and crippled with pain, escaping his pain apparently only through daydreams and fantasies. After these years, a hermit with the rep reputation of a surgeon operated on him, and Joseph experienced his first magical occurrence. He survived. <laughs> Without schooling and lacking significant social interaction for much of his life, Joseph was perceived as dim-witted, gaining the nickname Boca Perta, meaning gaping mouth, because he would just look out and open his mouth while staring at stuff. After working many inconsequential jobs, Joseph turned to the church and was ordained by the age of 25. Early in his career in the church, Joseph seemed to display mystical abilities and gained the repu reputation as a prophet, miracle worker, and healer, exhibiting telepathy, precognition, and influences over animals and natural forces. But the real kicker was the fact that Joseph began levitating while giving mass in front of the congregation not just once, but hundreds of times. 
His levitation and his proclivities towards the magical became problematic for the church, who moved Joseph around from town to town and attempted to prohibit him from doing his priestly duties. Regardless, his feats began to attract the attention of nobles, clergymen, and royalty alike. And unfortunately, it also attracted the attention of the Inquisition. When on trial by the Inquisition in Rome, Joseph was ordered to say mass to see if the rumors were true, and they were. He lifted off the ground in front of the inquisitors, <laughs> which is nuts. This is documented. Um, instead of being burned alive, Joseph was actually quite lucky and given a firm warning to stop his magical activities, but that actually seemed to be outside of his ability to control, and so he continued to get attention for his feats. In his second encounter with the Inquisition, he was placed on house arrest for the remainder of his life. He was only canonized by Pope Benedict XIV a century after his death. All things considered, he was extremely lucky. Like I said before, guys, it could have been as much as a million people who were tortured and killed by the Inquisition. If you are interested in checking out any of this information for yourself, which I highly recommend, please do be the critical thinker. I referenced information that I got from Dr. Dean Radin's book titled Real Magic, information from the Cambridge Encyclopedia of Anthropology, a article titled Magic by Matteo ben Benussi. Um, an article from the Indian Journal of Psychiatry titled Prayer and Healing, a Medical and Scientific Perspective on Randomized Controlled Trials, and information from Wikipedia. Um, I will always allow the listeners to make up their minds on any of the subjects I discuss. However, I will leave you with a quote from British novelist Roald Dahl, who said, and above all, Watch with glittering eyes the whole world around you, because the greatest secrets are always hidden in the most unlikely places. Those who don't believe in magic will never find it. Thanks for joining, guys. Um, I'm going to be putting out one podcast a month. I feel like that's the appropriate amount I can deal with in 2020. I hope you've enjoyed, and until next time, stay safe out there. Bye.